Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, everybody. This is President Donald Trump. It has now been 100 days. I am the greatest president in the history of presidents who's ever presidented. I have done more victory rallies than any other president. By the way, we have the highest ratings of any presidency ever. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man the White House claims is not afraid of stairs. Not afraid of stairs. No. Nope. Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm Jacob Weisberg. I'm here with my co-host, Virginia Heffernan, the author of Magic and Loss, Slate's chief political co- correspondent, Jamel Bowie. You may also have seen him on the show, Donald Trump Calls to Face the Nation. (laughs) We're fake news. It's fair. We're here on the last night of the Tribeca Film Festival. The smell of popcorn in this theater is overwhelming. (laughs) I think we're the last event of the 12-day Tribeca Film Festival. We have a fantastic crowd here. As uh, Donald Trump likes to say, there's lines around the block. Well... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not quite. Um, So the stairs thing, that was kind of weird, right? I think that got started when Theresa May was visiting, and Donald Trump Mm kind of grabbed her arm on some stairs, and the British tabloid started this thing like Donald Trump is afraid of stairs. Well, it was weird. Everyone was correcting for something because people didn't want to think that Theresa May and Donald Trump had gotten cozy so then they maybe invented the fiction, much more palatable fiction, that he's afraid of stairs, of which I think there were two. And, um, <laughs> and that's had to steady himself on her arm, lest we think that the special friendship had been rekindled between the two nations. Nothing to it, Jamel. He kind of <laughs> does, when he's going down from the plane, he kind of grabs that. Right. right. I mean, we don't, there are not that many images or videos of Donald Trump going downstairs. So A, uh, <laughs> But B, when we do see him going downstairs and such, he seems like very nervous. So nervous, in fact, that he leaves his wife behind <laughs> trying to deplane Air Force One. So, you know, I, I, I'm not confident enough to say in print that Donald Trump is afraid of stairs. But if you, like, ask me in a casual conversation, hey, Jim, is Donald Trump afraid of stairs? Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. You know, I really also to be fair, I do think that that time, that incredibly deeply reported Times article that came out in the first couple of weeks said something about maybe Kellyanne Conway being on the second floor. Am I getting this wrong? Because he'd probably never see her because he was quote afraid of stairs. And I mean, <laughs> this was the failing of your Times, but I mean, I, I I don't think they ever issued a correction. Well, is, there you is, have it. This is not actually our first topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said move that one along, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, our first topic, and we're going we're gonna to do three big topics, and then we're going to take some questions from all of you. We're going to mix it up. But the first topic is the big one. After 100 days, is Donald Trump less dangerous than we thought? That is, is he turning out to be merely an ineffectual president, as opposed to the threat to democracy that we've all been talking about for like a year and a half. And I'll just start this out. I kind of I think that. And I'll give you a couple, couple reference points. Um, one is the, I mean, first of all, you know, a key factor is 100 days, he has gotten no really major significant legislation through Congress 
at all. Although right. we're, there is still the possibility of something happening with healthcare. They're starting to beat the drums again next week. But uh, I was reading today's New York Times, one of the 100, 100 days stories I've read in the last <laughs> two days. And uh, this was Peter Baker writing today. I thought this was pretty convincing. He said, um, presumably, Mr. Trump will remain impulsive and even impetuous, but he's also been open to ad- advice. He was talked out of lifting sanctions on Russia, moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, abandoning the one China policy, tearing up the Iran nuclear agreement, reversing the diplomatic opening to Cuba, closing the export-import bank, declaring China a currency manipulator, and in recent days, terminating the North American Free Trade Agreement. So like all that stuff, and there's lots of other stuff too, that we were afraid he was going to crazily do, reversing all sorts of sane and sensible policies. Those are just foreign policy examples. Mm -hmm. He doesn't seem to actually be going through with any of it. Yeah, I mean, this has definitely been, I think, a leitmotif of the show since the inauguration, but even before it a little bit, was like, was he... um, sort of superficially scary and annoying, but not the dangerous president that, say, George W. Bush was with a high body count and um, and a crashed economy. Um, and I feel like we're always asking, revisiting this question. Like, I remember asking Steve Call about... Um, about Rex Tillerson this way, you know, is it, is what he's dangerous? Is he going to be dangerous like Condoleezza Rice was because he's ideologically driven or is he going to be dangerous because he does nothing or is the, or is the actual fear that he just won't be able to do anything? He'll be so constrained. He said the second, but I think ineffectual and dangerous are not mutually exclusive. So you have a president that is, that's, that's checked out or that's worried about his ratings or that's, uh, you know, caught in a snit all the time like Trump is. And there are things that can happen outside of an impetuous move by the U.S. president. I mean, there might be a war elsewhere. He certainly isn't capable of, uh, you know, making things any better in Syria. There could be currency markets failing from because of something else that happens in the world. He's not going to do any good for the refugee crisis. He's probably going to make things worse. And anything that, you know, any intention that anyone had about um, along right or left wing lines about improving uh, improving our pl- plight as Americans is not something that he's going to um, going to be able to help with, and he may be leaving us up to uh, vulnerable to dangers from abroad too. Right, right. If, if you're going to have a scale of like disaster from the George W. Bush presidency on like the world historical disaster side to like the fire festival mm-hmm. and like the hilarious fuck <laughs> I knew you were going to get that first. <laughs> I'm gonna, trying to really work he's that in. He's got seriously Ja Rule stuff he's been working uh, on. Um, so. That's, that's on, on the embarrassment, but right, right, right. not yeah. embarrassment, embarrassment. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's closer to Ja Rule than I think like any president should be. Um, <laughs> governments in the Bahamas have fallen over less than that. But, yeah. uh, but I want to, I think, I think it is worth saying two things. The first is that the extent to which he hasn't gone through with his most disastrous impulses, and I don't call them plans or ideas, they're really just impulses. I'm not, I'm going to do this because Obama did this and I want to negate him. That he hasn't gone through with them to me is indicative of what is genuinely scary about Trump in the event of a crisis, which is that he is easily convinced. He doesn't know anything. And so if a strong enough voice says something to him, he tends to go in that direction. In this case, the voices have been voices for stability and continuity with the previous administration. And so we've we've escaped any kind of disaster. Uh, it's interesting that his biggest single legislative disaster, which is the uh, the American Healthcare Act, he went on that path, which was obvious obvious to anyone with half a brain that trying to reshape 17% of the United States economy in three weeks is just not a good idea. I mean, like, this is like, yeah, yeah, getting started, sure. Like, yeah, you take your time. But to do it in a three-week period, bad idea. Paul Ryan almost certainly made a very persuasive-sounding case to Donald Trump that you have to do it that way. And when asked about it, Trump would say, oh, Ryan said we had to do it this way. If the Trump administration finds itself in a genuine crisis. I don't know how I feel that Donald Trump is easily moved by strong voices, um, especially if the crisis requires a deft touch um, or is involves issues that his cadre of advisors just like are the wrong people to be listening to. So that's that's one thing. The second thing is I think we should not forget 
that much of the damage of the Trump administration, even in its first 100 days, has less to do with Trump and more to do with the people he's put to head up government, head up the cabinet agencies, and in particular, uh, Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III uh, has been aggressive about about deportations, about using the Department of Justice, um, along with sort of uh, John Kelly at Homeland Security, uh, who has... Uh, ICE under under his jurisdiction, they've both been aggressive about going after immigrant communities and unauthorized immigrants. And so that, I think, if nothing else, the use of state power against disfavored minorities is going actually pretty smoothly for the Trump administration. And we we should always keep that in mind, that for all the hilarious disasters going on in the Oval Office, there's still this that um, is very real and uh, uh, very sort of transformative to how we think about United States. But I don't, I don't want to totally default to optimism here, but we do see an arc, right? I mean, the, at the beginning, when he first came in, he took advice from the crazies around him, Steve Bannon, Steve Miller. He, he signed this Muslim ban or the travel ban, as he later started calling it. It was a disaster, PR, politics thrown out by the courts. He's been trying to defend it ever since. But since then, he does seem to be taking more better advice from less crazy people. So Mathis, his sound Secretary of Defense, McMaster, his sound National Security Advisor. And on the NAFTA thing, I mean, it was just a classic example. He went into this call saying he was about to pull out of this treaty (laughs) and said, well, you know, they were kind of reasonable and asked nicely. So I said I wouldn't. I'd negotiate instead. I mean, do you not find that so troubling? (laughs) But I'll tell you what I would find more troubling if he actually pulled out of NAFTA. So I don't yeah, care yeah, fair, fair, what fair. kind of yeah, ridiculous like improvisation gets him out of the corner he's put himself in. I care that he doesn't go through with it. I just now. feel very weird that like where he's like Mr. Bagooing himself into like <laughs> into sort of like sensible-ish. Yeah. That yeah. might be the verb of the night. But, <laughs> I'm, but also, I'm not sure that we can call it after 100 days a straight trajectory from you know the arms of Steve Bannon to the arms of his son-in-law. He supposedly has let Bannon back in a little bit. Certainly, the rhetoric of the rally was was Bannon-esque um, and was you know quite incendiary again and was old Donald Trump. He's an agent of chaos. And I think like, you know, I've said before that if you we think of him like an alcoholic father, he can be abusive and then he can also just be a neglectful. And the Muslim ban, it's not that the Muslim ban didn't have didn't have no effects. The Muslim ban was a mess. And it's still airports and families are still reeling from what that, you know, what that that weekend was. And people are still afraid of traveling here and if they can leave. And it did a really nice job of instilling terror into the population that it was designed to instill terror in. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just that chaos that like I can hit you in the face. He did this on The Apprentice. You know, I can. uh, It looks like I'm going to fire you. No, I'm going to fire you. You know, it looks like I like I like Jared now. No, I let, now I'm back to liking Stephen Miller. And I think he's going to be chaotic like that. And I think it's going to be crazy making. You know, the hope is that it's not crazy making for people in the press. The hope is that we can stay enough detached that we, uh, you know, don't fall back in love with him just because, you know, he brought mommy roses this one time, <laughs> or he brought he brought Ivanka a Syria a Syria intervention. Um. <laughs> Here's how we know Bannon's not coming back. He dresses like a slob. Mm. Everybody knows that you get no respect from Donald Trump unless you dress like Jamel. Jared <laughs> dresses like Jamel. He's running the show. Bannon looks like he slept in his clothes. <laughs> and that's it. For, that's the only problem with Bannon. Trump is never going to listen to you if you look like an unmade bed like that. And it's amazing that Bannon hasn't figured that out. Yeah, he could at least tape his tie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, do you, do you think it, ba- this idea that Bannon might be might be making a comeback? or like so that's, What is it? Some of the rhetoric of the rally and, and another... Oh, and his... The claim of his many successes, his world historical successes of the last hundred days, contained a little Bannon language. Right. I mean, I think I have no particular insight over whether Bannon is in or out. Um, I, I'm generally still sort of like stuck on the fact that, like, hey, like Steve Bannon, who's like, yeah, 
the white supremacist, I think we can fairly say, has like a White House office. And it's it's still disturbing to me how much like collectively we have kind of been like, oh, OK, yeah, totally. Uh, white, white, crazy person, white nationalist uh, in the White House, Oval Office uh, seat. Yeah, sure. Let's move on. Um, same with Sebastian Gorka, right? Like a dude who who at best, most charitably, you can say has ties to uh, Hungarian, Hungarian fascists. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. the most charitable thing you can say about Sebastian Gorka. Someone tried to say he was a neo-Nazi o- online, and I think he's, like, a paleo-Nazi. Yeah, the like, there's right, nothing right, right, right. neo like, about those the, Hungarian the, Yeah, yeah the, arrow, the arrow cross was, like, like legit <laughs> yeah, pro-Nazi. Yeah, they're, like, yeah. OG and, um, Nazis. No, so I don't know if Bannon is in or out. Uh, I think what is more relevant is just that, like, Bannon... Bannon and Miller, for that matter, still have the ear of the president, right? They still can make a case to uh, Trump, and Trump shows no particular interest in getting rid of either of them. Mm. Um, and so I think, especially in those areas where the president has quite a bit of authority and the press, frankly, pays a little less attention to, so around immigration enforcement, around uh, around that, they may still be quite influential. Um, I'm not prepared to say that they they're out of the circle. So topic two is what is stopping Donald Trump from doing the worst? The premise of topic one was Mm -hmm. that maybe there were some restraining influences on the inside. But clearly, the big thing has been the opposition in its many forms that has checked Trump. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to talk about now, is what parts of the opposition have been effective, what's been meaningful, and what is Mm -hmm. the opposition strategy. And see, in fact, I don't even feel like we have to call it the resistance anymore. We can just call it the normal op- opposition. Yeah. I'm glad because the resistance sounds kind of cheesy. It you sounds, decided it did. I still love it. It was sort really of like self-congratulatory. Yeah, it was kinda, like we're all wearing berets. Okay, and, it's know. sort of like, hey, look, consensus. hey, we're all calling there our Congress people now. There is not about this. I'm still, I'm not going to nod my head. I still think it sounds uh, I don't know. Cool. I mean, you're, you're <laughs> like, you've got the resistance jacket on there. Exactly. You and Steve Bannon. He's the counter-revolution. It would be one thing People are like writing letters like to their <laughs> writing letters to the senators from like Forrest where they're hiding as partisans, but um, uh, they're not. So I mean, I have tweeted and been called like mean names before. <laughs> so if you think I'm not shedding blood for the resistance, um, I think that we that one saving grace about Donald Trump is that he is not an ideologue. So you know, I, I really interesting conversation last night with uh, with someone about North Korea and. I still think that the body, that peace and prosperity, so issues that are, are neither red nor blue, right? We can agree that peace is better than war and prosperity is better than poverty. So peace and prosperity were vexed under George W. Bush in ways that I don't think they ever were before. And um, just due to a president's actions along the lines of nation building and you know enormous spend, federal spending. And he just put his head down and did that stuff, even when everything told him not to, even when it was unpopular, even when it was clear it wasn't, he didn't care. He stopped. He didn't have Trump's like craven need for approval or his impulsive changing of direction. You know, I think when we were all growing up in the 20th century that like it was ideology that was the worst thing that could, you could have in a tyrant. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a Stalin, a Hitler, I mean, Trump, I don't think that Trump could commit to exterminationist anti-Semitism long enough to pull off even an attack of Poland, you know? Uh, He could never (laughs) see it through, you know? Right. I mean, our model of authoritarianism is people who want to erase history as opposed to someone who doesn't remember what happened five minutes ago. (laughs) Right, exactly. That's right. Literally, there is only the present. There's only the present moment, yeah. 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 And and so I think think we've been saved a bit by that. I mean, like, just... To be in, I mean, of all the things he defends himself against, the one thing that he almost never takes to Twitter to say to defend himself is the lies. It's just amazing. Like, he just doesn't say, well, I was actually right about this, and here's data to prove it, or it's just, we're on to the next thing. Let's move on, yeah. But, but, this, but this is, I want to talk about the opposition here. Oh, yeah. This, Slate did a, a big survey piece which had an illustration of, of uh, Trump tied down like Gulliver and said it was a long sort of discussion of all the sort of factors that have checked him. And I want to know what you guys think Mm. has been important. Has it been the people marching in the streets, you know, which they were doing again this weekend? Yesterday. Has it 
been, you know, Chuck Schumer and the congressional opposition? Has it been, you know, the ACLU and civil society organizations? And when, mm. when you really think about what's blocked this guy, what do you think the big things are? Jamel, you start. So I think I think people marching in the streets has actually been really important, right? Like it's it's very significant that the day after he was inaugurated, the United States saw some of its largest single day protests in its history. And what that did was it gave spine to uh, Democratic lawmakers in particular who may have felt that they had an obligation to work with the president. Now, I'll say as a parenthetical, the fact that any Democrat, and there are certainly some who who did think this, um, might have this thought is like disgraceful. Like, come on, guys. Like, you just you just lived through the Obama era. You just lived through the whole Mitch McConnell thing, which worked. Um, so what are you thinking? But all those protests kind of bolstered Democrats who already were feeling like they need to oppose and then sort of dissuaded more cooperative Democrats from going down that path. I think the other thing, and this I'm not sure if this is relates to the opposition per se, although the fact that congressional Democrats have pretty much taken a uh, complete sort of you know opposition pose to the Trump administration factors into this. It deprives Trump to some degree of a workable majority in the Senate. Um, but just the fact that the the time frame for big action from a president is actually really limited, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. a reason why 100 days is a bit of is a bit of an artificial uh, limit, but it it does capture something true, which is that after like three or four months, lawmakers start thinking about reelection deadlines for things like budgets come up. Um, uh, you start running into intransigence in various parts of the federal government. That mm-hmm. like your it gets free- harder, not easier. Right, your freedom of action limits dramatically, and I think that you know that coupled with the uh, the stunning incompetence of much of the White House staff has been kind of a natural limit to what they can do, at least legislatively, and even to a certain extent in terms of their like executive actions since. For at least a month, no one there was knowledgeable enough to write an executive order that you know stood or makes sense, made sense. Yeah, Virginia, who are you thanking when you say grace? I, you know, um, and I do. I say mean, really, grace. who just at a gut level? Who yeah. do you thinks like have been effective checking this guy? There, you know, the spectacle on, and we are celebrating a hundred days since the women's march today, and a hundred days of resistance. You won't call it. Let me call it that. You men, patriarchy people, um, <laughs> but. Um, but uh, 100 days into the resistance, um, the the kind of constant spectacle, and I'm going to move from that women's women's march t- to me of the of the town meetings, has been really powerful. Um, and I think especially on the heels of seeing the marches in the red states, um, it just the you know I just when I feel disheartened, I go back and look at you know I look at Boise and I look at Des Moines and I look at the the, the people whose resistance has been, I think, in some ways harder than ours on the coast because they're lumped in with with Trump voters. And it's just imagined to be a regional, you know, a regional thing. And in some some cases it was only they were only a few percentages under in votes for Hillary. And then they just got erased. So the gaslighting there is very it's it's palpable and painful. And when they get when they've gotten to assert themselves in the red states at the town meetings or in those early marches, um, or when they, as yesterday with the climate march, you know, drive to Washington, come take trains to Washington. I mean, I was on Amtrak yesterday with people coming out from the cli- coming back from the climate march, you know, to Baltimore, to Philadelphia, and they have they just made their signs and they go down and it's two, it's one person, it's you know, and and. Uh, um, I mean, and that's just powerful to see to me. Um, so I, th- I guess it is the marches. It also, so I was in, in the Russia in 1996, and I remember trying to sort of compare notes post-Cold War with some young women there. And um, they wouldn't let me compare. They just kept saying, it just wasn't normal. It wasn't normal then. It wasn't normal then. And I, I think the relentless assertion that Trump's not normal, that this is a fringe group that are really in control in the White House, there it's a very strange special interest group. I was almost thinking the way there's LGBTQ, we should have initials that are like neo-Nazi skinhead nationalist protectionist. And they could be like, we all support each other in our identity or whatever, because they really are very strange, you know, and it's like this very 
small, I guess like the identity politics are going on with the white guys. Like look at the women's march and it's not just a rainbow coalition. It's like we're asking for baseline reassertions of like Magna Carta era stuff. Like not anything new, not fancy, not bathrooms. We're down to signs that are like, please respect me, Mr. President, and don't murder me today. You know, (laughs) there's just like, please government don't bulldoze on my town. And that is just like, that is normal. It feels normal. It feels normal to be center left. It feels normal to be a reasonable Republican. And it feels normal to be far left now. But, you know, just sort of back to my optimism theme. But the, <laughs> I mean, the white guys I'm feeling kind of grateful to are the framers of the Constitution. Because yep. I think while yep. Trump had a very bad first hundred days, checks and balances had a, a great, great hundred yep. days. Did they really, though? Yeah. <laughs> no, really. Well, well, let, me, let, me, yeah, let me put the case. You can put yeah, okay, the contract yeah, yeah. case. But... You know, the, the Trump's most blatantly unconstitutional orders have been nailed in every federal court and in almost every district in the country. Congress has stood up to him. And the press, the, the fourth branch, has, I think, performed honestly much better than I expected it to in challenging Trump in a, you know extraordinary circumstance. We're going to talk about that, that in a minute. And the surprising thing that's not a check and balance per se – is that the executive branch has stood up to the president, too. And there's been all sorts of hmm. disobedience, leaking, all sorts of hmm. undermining of the president, um, which I think is still, to me, is still a, a, a sort of constitutional exercise. The independence of the civil service, the independence of people who have a commitment to the executive branch of government that goes beyond this president. So, But tell me why I'm wrong, like Jamal. So here's why you're wrong. Um, <laughs> Congress, so let's, let's check some balances, look at like the various the various places. The travel ban, the initial travel ban didn't go down because it was outside the authority of the president of the United States. It went down because that authority was a little too broadly asserted. But a more competent team in the White House, a fully staffed office of legal counsel could have crafted an initial travel ban that had much the same effect and would have passed constitutional muster muster because it's it's unquestionable Mm. that the president of the United States has that kind of authority over immigration and and border entering. So this was this was a a problem of sloppiness, not necessarily uh, uh, sort of constitutional overreach. And so I'm not I'm not quite sure I'd call that. It's like good that the court said we're going to hold you to a strict standard, right? You got you got to really got to dot your eyes and cross your t's. I always want to say cross your eyes and dot your t's because I'm like <laughs> vaguely dyslexic about <laughs> aphorisms. Um, but so cross 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 your t's, dot your eyes. Uh, so there's that. With Congress, it's not clear to me that Congress has really stood up to the president much. What what seems to have happened is that the Republican majority in the House is more incompetent than we ever could have anticipated. And <laughs> uh, I'm, thank you for clapping for my statement of fact. Uh, uh, is is less capable of kind of the basic task of governance. I mean, to to that point, this past week, it was an open question whether or not there'd be a government shutdown, despite all the branches of government being controlled by the Republican Party. So you have you have incompetence in the White House. You have incompetence in uh, in Congress. That acts. In, 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 in a world where you have to actually be legitimately good at this to get anything done, that acts as its own barrier. But it's very easy to me to imagine a politician with Trump's aims and objectives or you know, who translates Trump's impulses into aims and objectives and is methodical and grounded and is able basically to do all the terrible things we were worried about mm-hmm. um, and have them and, and do them in such a way that uh, you know the Republican Congress doesn't push back. The uh, courts say, "Hey, the, this checks out as far as like constitutional muster goes," um, and that in fact checks and balances don't assert themselves. Uh, I think an example, sort of, for evidence for this is that the Republican Congress doesn't especially care that the. Trump White House is, or Donald Trump is like enriching himself on all these trips, right? Like it's directly putting taxpayer dollars into his own pockets, which is like legitimately unconstitutional. Like you can't do that. Um, there aren't actually that many impeachable offenses on paper, but that's totally one of them. Uh, and the fact that 
Republicans in Congress um, have been utterly uninterested in this it suggests to me that a more competent Donald Trump, like let's say we had like a Marine Le Pen in the United States. So let's say Ivanka Trump becomes president <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in 12 years. Um, and once that sort of I thought it was going to be Jared. It's going to be Ivanka. Ivanka. It's going to be kind of queen region of Ivanka. Finally, Trump. a female president. Um, I mean, we've been waiting. <laughs> that glass uh, ceiling. Boy, is she going to move a lot of jewelry then? Uh, yeah. It's just I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm skeptical that what we're looking at is sort of the genius of the founders, and and I I think it's more just like everyone underestimated how bad at this uh, this particular government would be. Yeah, well, it's, there is certainly... Thank you. <laughs> I agree with you, Jamel, that there has been no accountability within his party in Congress. And that, you could say it's shocking, but it's not shocking. But when you look at Congress, the opposition party in Congress, and when you look at the courts, you know, these decisions on the, on the travel ban, they cited his words. I mean, it was what he indicated mm-hmm. to be the purpose of what he was doing, rather than just the sloppy drafting. Those same opinions could apply even if they had drafted it more carefully and dotted the T's and crossed the I's. Yeah, as yeah. You said. I, also, I, think, I also think the judges don't want to uphold the travel ban. I mean, they, it just it doesn't, again, it was really, I always I keep saying you're, this conversation that you had on, on Trumpcast about the articles of, of impeachment um, was really powerful because a lot of this is, like, that's just wrong, the travel ban. And I feel like judges looked at it and they were, um, you know, they were basically just saying no. You know, they, I mean, it just even, you know, Priebus said today something about like we might make a introduce a constitutional amendment to inhibit the the freedom of the press. He said we've looked at that. We've looked at that. Right. We've <laughs> deeply we've like we have a committee we've looking at into changing it. Changing the First Amendment. We looked at changing the First Amendment. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't get John McCain standing up and cheering. It's just where they're just like, I'm going to du- like duck and cover. And nobody and no, not even no Paul Ryan's not going to say, you know, following on that i really want to um i have some my red pen out here for the first amendment also they're just um yeah, i don't i wouldn't i don't know if i give paul ryan that much credit uh, well I, I, it's not his issue you know <laughs> and um but but i do think that there's i don't know i think there's like some hardwired um respect for the the bill of rights at least that 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 you see coming out with the judges and, and in congress so here's a question um is, I am, you know, insofar that bureaucrats and judges are sort of like embodying kind of, you know, pluralism and kind of the American values we, we most hold dear in their approach to the Trump administration, I'm like happy with that substantive outcome. But does it does it bother either of you that like you can easily imagine a reverse scenario with like a mainstream, let's say Bernie Sanders just became president of the United States and wanted to do things that were within his authority but solve resistance from um, from bureaucrats who decided they were going to slow walk or even sabotage what he was trying to do. Like what I, I that's 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 a problem. Like the for as much as Trump is terrible, it, it is also within our constitutional order that presidents um, or that that the the federal government and the executive branch carries out his instructions and his his policy and a part of me and i would like to hear what you guys think a part of me is bothered by this uh this kind of internal executive branch resistance um just 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 for the sake of like but that is part of what it is jamel part of it is is people being upstanding citizens and opposing a guy they think is is a potential autocrat but part of it is just the molasses nature of bureaucracy. Right. And they resist any change. And they resisted Obama. And they mm. resisted Clinton, not out of ideology, but because bureaucracies like to keep doing things the way they've been doing them. And I agree with you that if you're on the side of change, that's deeply frustrating. And if you don't like the change, it's, it's kind of reassuring. But it is one of the evolved checks in the system that you can't turn the federal government on a dime and say, Here's all, here are all our mm-hmm. new policies, go do them. Right. You have to kind of figure out where those levers are to make the bureaucracy work. But it, it does work. suggest that like, the federal government is not working and maybe hasn't, it just, 
I mean, that would be the other weird thing we'd be here talking about is that we have a president who cares who he is, who's done nothing in the first hundred days. It's just that's a weird thing to belong to a, a country that has that's a, a ghost ship or that's I don't know what the analogy is, but that's just um, that's not running. It's just not moving. Like we're happy because the pilot's dead. <laughs> like that's because he sucked. But yeah. it's still that's still not you know that's not that's not great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, do you think that was set up under Obama? Like you you were saying this like this stuck molasses system isn't uh, isn't isn't a good thing. So I mean, I guess I guess I think that. Like I said earlier, the lack of action is a function more of ultimately this is all a function of just like White House incompetence. Um, that the you know the what's the stat right now? That's something something like over 500 appointed positions in the executive branch don't even have nominees, right? That's like a that's like not even amateur hour. That's like maybe they just didn't know, right? Like they they didn't know that they had to hire all these people, <laughs> right? And they haven't. In that quick conversation uh, they didn't, they with Obama. They didn't expect to win. <laughs> right, right. I mean, they didn't yeah. have a bunch of names ready to go. And so, you know, that that's going to that's gonna make it hard to exercise your will in the executive branch. And um, that's probably one reason why things are moving as, as slow as molasses. But I, I don't know. To, to kind of restate. So do, you, is it po- do you think that, I mean, I, now for some reason I'm like newly fixated on, on George W. Bush. I mean, did that administration work? It did. No, I mean, yeah. it, it, it worked in so far that, like, the the principles of the Bush administration had uh, a particular kind of, like, vision of government that they wanted to to execute, and they attempted to do it. The problem was that that vision of government was, like, a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of their plans ended up failing, or many of them failed, because, like, they were just... They were hyper ideological and untethered to like fact and and considered judgment, um, but they they attempted to do it right. That was like that's actually like the, the genius of Dick Cheney is the thing that makes him like a, a mustache twirling villain is that he sort of understood that um, personnel was policy and used his influence to get as many Cheneyites into the bureaucracy as he possibly could um, for the express purpose of steering things in that direction. If you and there's really no one like that how in it the, works. If you're right. Dick Cheney, who was a political scientist who spent his whole career studying mm-hmm. how the government worked, it was really hard to make things happen. Right. True. If you're if you're Jared Kushner showing up from New York with a real estate portfolio that you're you're trying to promote, forget it. Yeah. They're right. Not, they're not going to work for you. <sighs> this I, sounds really radical to me. I mean, the slight suggestion that this system hasn't worked for a long time, and when it does work, it looks like George W. Bush. Well, doesn't work is a little strong, Virginia. I think okay. it's 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 hard to it's hard to move in a direction. Right, right. Yeah. And so the 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 point is, it continues to work the way it's been working. You say you show up and say, "Here's what I think the Department of Education should be doing." Mm-hmm. If you're Betsy DeVos, I think we should have vouchers and we could change everything. And most of the people at the Department of Education put their heads down and say, "That's very nice, Betsy DeVos." Yeah. Now we're going to get back to running all the programs we run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And unless yeah. you have legislation, which you don't. You can't make us do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the fact that Trump has catalyzed this complete audit on the part of all of us, but also of what democracy is, what the Constitution is, what the executive branch's responsibilities are and how it works, is really has been a very powerful change and potentially, and I don't want to be optimistic, but potentially a salubrious one for the body politic a healthy one for us that we're that we're doing all this you know like really looking at um at brass tacks on all these things and you know trump is such a good brander and you know he put betsy devos in and maybe it's just like a coat of paint to say now we believe in vouchers and the kingdom of heaven what is her her what is her ideology again i mean her thing it's it is a kingdom anyway that we're going to start teaching that in schools and then nobody does it and then we move on you know it's a, a layer but he of the base that cares about it by making making noise about it even though yeah I, I guess before we move on i still want to say it does bother me that it still does bother me that if betsy devos we want vouchers and 
it is within the mission of the, the Department of Education doesn't have like a super well-defined mission, but it's not, it's not counter to the mission of the Department of Education to look for alternative funding mechanisms for different kinds of schools. And if DOE bureaucrats said, yeah, that's nice, we're not going to do it, I think that'd be a problem. Like, it, this is a bit different than, say, with the EPA, whose mission very much is it is environmental protection. If Scott Pruitt says, I want you to look for places where we can drill for oil, and bureaucrats said, yeah, no, I think that's a bit more defensible, right? Because, like, Scott Pruitt is ordering something in di- direct contradiction of the mission of that agency. Mm. But if if something fits within the mission of the agency, and it's just that, like, the bureaucrats think it's too hard or, like, they politically may have a problem with it, it bothers me that they wouldn't do it, even I, though I think you're making a great point, and it's the will come back to Hannah's point. And there are already things that have, right? I mean, Obama's use of executive orders because hmm. Congress was so uncooperative has now expanded the range of motion right. that Trump can use with executive orders. And you have to be, it's the key point, you know, you can't be for the filibuster when it helps you and against the filibuster when it hurts, hurts mm-hmm. your side. You have to find some neutral principles about how you think the government should work. Right. Um, let's move on and talk for a few minutes about the press. Yeah. Um, I was reading one of these 100, 100 days story the yeah. other day in the Wall Street Journal and there was a... Uh, Quote from Newt Gingrich, who is every every once in a while says something really strangely insightful. And the quote was, uh, Donald Trump is an existentialist. He lives entirely in the moment. It's not what that means. It's not what that means. But what I think it was, well, he's not not an existentialist. What it means is what you were saying before, Virginia, that... Trump doesn't think about what he said 10 minutes ago. He doesn't care if you call him a liar. He doesn't care about in- inconsistency. Mm-hmm. He is totally improvising 100% of the time with no sense of the past, not much sense of the future. But the whole way the press usually holds someone accountable, which mm-hmm. is you said this and now you're saying this. You promised to do this and now you're not doing that. You did this instead. Doesn't matter to him. I mean, it's So another- the question is... If I think New Gears on to a little something, just sort of diagnosing how, how yeah. Trump thinks, how do you as a journalist, Jamel, why don't you start with this? How do you hold someone accountable who doesn't feel accountable in any conventional way to his own statements right, and right. past positions? Right. He seems to exist outside like the space time continuum. Uh, relative to the rest of us, who's like a Q in it's politics. It's just what's happening now. He, um, yeah, I mean, you go. Yeah, and- TNG fans out there. <laughs> uh, I'm glad somebody got that reference. I, did not. <laughs> I was, I was like hoping someone would. Was that science fiction? Uh, yes, yeah, yes, okay. yes. <laughs> um, I know that. <laughs> so, my general approach to this has been to like pay attention to like the concrete things happening, the actual people, right? Like, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean. First of all, Trump is certainly not reading me, so it's not like I could not like not like anything I say is going to weigh on on anyone in that administration. But in terms of readers, um, focusing on uh, what's happening to, to people and and pointing out the ways in which uh, the inexperience and incompetence of the White House have like hampered their their freedom of movement, I think uh, is important. But for the kinds of people that Trump does listen to, like the New York times, for example, um, it, I, I don't know how one covers someone who, who is oblivious or contemptuous of even the idea of accountability. Um, or how do you even cover someone whose words don't seem to mean anything? I mean, earlier in the evening we, we spoke about how he's reversed himself on so many things and how in one breath he'll say, you know, I'm going to withdraw from NATO and the next breath said, I'm not going to do that. At a certain point, did, does the words of the president of the United States actually hold any weight or meaning? Um, or are they just kind of like, like, you know, debris in the air? Uh, that we have to, we have to avoid. In the air. That's it. You'd yeah. be embarrassed. He's not. He's just not embarrassed. He doesn't care that he changes his position by the minute. And it seems to be at some level effectively, effective politically because there is a group of people, a core group of his supporters who don't mind that he, that he does that. In fact, they kind of like that he's improvising all the time and seems like what, doing what seems like a good idea at the moment. You know, there's this um, 
I think existentialism is probably the wrong word, but I mean, it is the, who knows? Existentialism, nobody really knew, knew what that was anyway. But, but I think what he's describing as a former, full, you just know what it is. <laughs> I think that's, I think it's, it's not my word, it's Newt's word. As a one-time um, philosophy major myself, I think that he's describing something called solipsism of the present moment, um, which is, you know, first... As we can probably guess from Trump, this is not at all a psychological uh, diagnosis, but just more a philosophical position that I think he doesn't believe in the existence of other minds. Like right. he yeah. doesn't act as though he does. Yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> and um, and then that it's the present moment. And when in philosophy classes, probably lots of you know this, when someone starts making an argument that maybe we are all just brains and vats and our experience is being simulated and it's it's a projection of the present moment and it's all ever changing, it's that argument is disqualified from conversation because if you decide to put that in place, you've just flipped the game board and walked away, you had a tantrum, it's not fair play, and it's not even language. So language is not binding anymore. You know, it's sometimes kids, teenagers do this, are right. just like, well, it's all bullshit anyway, or whatever. So there is an, you know, he brings that out in you with this kind of action that like, you you know, that's the or original reductio ad absurdum, is you start, it, it, so, it's very frustrating to try to cover with ordinary language someone who defies even the terms of the most standard language game um, and obviously feels no shame in the face of, of uh, you know, pathological lying, constant lying. But here's the problem, and this goes back to your articles of impeachment thing. In a person, if you have an underperforming executive or you have a husband who is, uh, talks like that, you, uh, you know, people are advised to treat it as though it was noise and nonsense because to the extent that you get hooked into any of it, you're, you're lost. You know, you're, you're, you're getting all these reactions provoked because it lands to you, we got to get out of NATO. Suddenly you think, here's what's going to happen. We don't have this alliance anymore and the Pax Americana is over and whatever. And then the next day he's back in NATO. So why did you like let this cortisol thing happen? And worse than that, maybe take action on something that he was about to reverse on. So you're supposed to just sit that out. But he's the president. Right. His exactly. speech is not not like our speech. Like, you know, we can say whatever palaver we say up here, and it doesn't move markets, and it doesn't trigger North Korea, and it doesn't send everybody into spirals, and they can take it or leave it. But you know, I think in that conversation you had with Noah Feldman, you ca came up with some I interesting ideas about what the president's speech is and how it's different from ordinary well, speech. Well, Noah Feldman make makes the argument that because. The, the the historical evolved meeting of, of high crimes and misdemeanors, first of all, crimes and misdemeanors means the same thing, but it's essentially wrongdoing by the president, the person who has high office and this or is, anyone with this high This is office. kind of moral wrongdoing. I mean, yeah. And that, and there's no other remedy. You can't sue the president for libel. You can't sue him for any other kinds of, the only remedy is imp impeachment. And of course, impeachment doesn't mean he's removed from office. But if you're, if you're impeached, and and Noah Feldman makes you know a very strong argument, which I don't happen to agree with, but he makes a strong argument that Trump's attacks on the press, the things he said, not only are not protected by the First Amendment in a conventional way, but are abuses of office and, and, are, and it would be article should be articles of impeachment. It's a very it's a very interesting argument. But I think what you're saying, I mean, first of all, Virginia, that was brilliant. That was that was great. That was great. Uh, but it it, it 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 frames the problem, I think, exactly the way we're facing it, is that you do have a president who is so not playing by the normal rules of logic, discourse, consistency, that it is a reductio ad absurdum. And if he's saying, I don't care about any of that, I'm just doing what I'm doing right now. We, there isn't really any remedy. I mm. mean, there's no way to relate to that. And what the, the press tends to keep doing is in a very responsible way, calling them on it. Mm. You lied again. You've lied 17 times today. You've, you know, you, you've cha you changed your, your position on NATO, you know, here, here and here, and here's what you said. But the president, his advisors, and... 40% of the country aren't interested. Yeah. 
And one of the things that, I don't know if any of you saw Will Ferrell's impression of George W. Bush on the Samantha Bee show last night, but... Um, Where you, you were re- representing Trumpcast. Yes, like, I represent Trumpcast, and they shouted us out <laughs> for our, our really hard-hitting work do- doing MeUndies ads. <laughs> um, Pulitzer is on its way, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that Ferrell, as Bush said, is... Um, you know, I rem- I, I'm half inclined to try to do my impersonation, but I Go will spare it. you. Um, he, he said, do you, you know, you all, <laughs> you all in the press um, used to ask me these gotcha questions like, why are we going to war? <laughs> um, gotcha. <laughs> and um, he said, if only I had known that I could just say fake news whenever you ask me a question. And it's true. Bush at least stammered out an answer like he felt he had to say something. Why are we going to war? Where Trump would just say fake news. I mean, it is anyway, it's it's I think one very immediate remedy is to leave him off the front page. Just a weird idea, but it's just start with other stories. No, I mean, I think I think that's right. I think if you're faced with a president who has decided that his that words essentially have no meaning that what that the weight of what he says carries nothing carries no actual communication yeah um then just don't put him on a one anymore like have just like a compendium in the back of the paper that's like, hey, this is what Trump said today yeah um it's on A18. You can check it out if you want. Yeah. And otherwise, no, like... Tr- Trump's Twitter corner. Right. And it would be like like this like this weird thing on, yeah, on, you know, on A7. I mean, one, one thing that sort of troubles me sort of on this kind of like, like philosophical, you know, public discourse note is that part of the reason why the words of the president are supposed to carry so much weight is that the president is the only elected representative of the people constituted, however you want to constitute yeah. them, right? That like, that's where the president's moral legitimacy and authority comes from. Mm. Like, I represent the American people who elected me. If Trump's words contain no meaning and carry no information, is there anyone actually speaking for Mm. the public, for the body politic? Like, are we we, Mm. we in this era? Is part of what feels so discombobulating about this, the fact that we actually don't, in a a critical sense, Mm. have a president? We just have, like, this guy... Saying saying shit that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, but the problem is, and there must could, have been kings. I just feel like yeah. there's a monarch. There's a an analogy with a monarchy that I'm just not, you know, with King George or with just it, like there's people have had insane leaders for millennia, right? And who don't represent the people <laughs> and don't even say they do and speak to their sect. You know, even at his rallies, he's he's only talking about himself as the president of his base. Right. But anyway, there must be a way to survive it. Yeah. I mean, if everyone agrees that it means nothing, that's good. That works. But I'm concerned that Kim Jong Un might still right, think exactly. it means something. Right, right. You know, and and the 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 Chinese seem to have figured out it doesn't. Yes. And you know, you know which it, thank God for it. You yeah. know. I know. I, I know. I'm like the solipsist of the present moment. I am switching my positions, but I but I a little bit think that there's, it's possible that people outside America understand it better, because we are the Chinese were really quick to read the Taiwan thing, and not get affronted at it and just decide, oh, we've got another one of the, there's another autocrat, you know, with a hot temper and we know how to deal with that before. I mean, we Xi are- Xi Jinping played that di- brilliantly. He, he didn't rise to the bait and then he said, basically, call us when your tantrum is over. <laughs> yeah. We will take your call when you're done. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's possible that we are just still such earnest Puritans that we're like, but he's mean and he says things that aren't true. And everybody else has had a leader like this. You know, it's our turn. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do a lightning round now mm-hmm. before we um, go to questions. And the lightning round is because he has proposed a tax cut, which we should not call tax reform because it's not tax reform. It's going to have a lot of financial implications. And I'm now going to ask you guys for your best investment advice for the second <laughs> hundred days. So what, with your 401k, your little nest egg, do you go long on? What do you go short on based on what you think is going to happen in the Trump presidency? 
Jamel, you you start up. This is like we're like CNBC now. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm always never entirely clear what like in terms like long and short mean. So I'm gonna long means you're buying it. Short means you're selling. I'm selling it. it. Yeah. So I'm I'm sh- I'm sh- I guess I'm shorting the ability for any legislation to get passed. Right. I just like I'm I'm skeptical. The easiest thing that could happen on tax cuts is like they just like you know they just cut it they cut taxes for rich people for ten years and like let it sunset after that like they did with the Bush tax cuts. I'm not even sure that's going to happen honestly. Like I don't. And I, I, I'm skeptical. Um, so I'm, I'm going to short, uh, I guess, the Trump administration and the, the Congress passing a large tax cut. Um, and so going along with this is something that I, I hope to make money on. <laughs> like yeah. in a, um, it's a great question. Uh, so you're going to invest in based on what you think is going to happen. What's a good investment? If you think, if you think Trump's tax cut isn't going to happen, right. you're not gonna, you're, it's not a great time to start a hedge fund. I feel like the, my only thing for going long on is just going to be really depressing. Um, I'm going to go go long on the Justice Department, just like pretending like police shootings don't happen, <laughs> right? Just yeah, like, I don't know how you arbitrage that, but yeah, uh, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> just Jeff Sessions, like I mean, Jeff Sessions already says right that like the the problem in American policing is that people just don't respect cops enough, right? <laughs> so like more of that, I, I would I would put money on. I think I'm going to, I'm trying to, but I knew you were going to ask this. I'm trying to fudge the question a little bit too. Um, but I, you guys um, are never going to be on CNBC. No, no. I know yeah. you're right. We should be angling for those gigs. Um, <laughs> it's also hard to, isn't it hard to think about money the way you used to? I don't know. It just, I keep getting swamped <laughs> by politics. Um, but I do have an actual answer. I am short tech. I just think that, that Silicon Valley, it is just like a miserable time. And the venture community is, um, is, uh, is reeling also. And, you know, I don't know exactly what that means. It seems, it looks like TWTR Twitter is up, which is, uh, you know, amazing. I think we've asked what, I mean, just as a sidebar, I think we've asked way, way too much of, you know, a little microblogging platform that was meant to, you know, talk about where to get a beer in Austin, Texas, and now is moving mountains and is like a centerpiece of geopolitics. It's like they get us all killed. It's asking like nodes of Rubik's cubes to like, you know, <laughs> to, to 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 you know manage world history. Um, but uh, so you know, and then I think uh, you know places obviously like Uber that are not public but are, are currently disasters. And then as far as um, what I'm long, New York Times company is still a public company. <laughs> um, it is very, the, the life around the media and the fourth estate, if not the money, is very powerful right now. It really is. And um, you know when George Jefferson used to like rainy days because people do their dry cleaning on rainy days or whatever? I mean, it's true that the press like does well when there's, look, we thought we needed millennials for the, or we needed a digital strategy in the media. What we needed was a mighty story. What we needed was what Melville said you needed, which is to tell, have a mighty story. You need a mighty subject. We have a mighty subject right now. And ev- so many things derive from it. It's visceral. It's, there's moral battle in it. And I'd invest in the media. All right. Um, we're going to take a few questions. I'm going to give you investment advice in a minute. But uh, <laughs> while I think of my investment advice, yeah, put, put your hands up. And my investment advice, so that's, uh, that's buy the New York Times, sell Twitter. <laughs> yep. That's uh, your long Justice Department abuse. I think that's a little hard to trade on. Um, mine's simple. Um, you long China because we are ceding power and influence to them at a rapid rate. And investments in China long term are going to, are going to thrive. And short, I'm afraid to say American markets because the so-called <laughs> Trump trade, which is investments made, the stock market is up almost 15 percent since the election. The reason for that is partly that people think these tax cuts, which are going to allow uh, companies to pay a lower tax rate and bring all sorts of capital back to this country. People think that has a chance of passing. I think that is not such a good chance of passing right now. <laughs> He's so, just like with a straight Jacob face. He just said, sell out your own country and plow it into a hostile foreign power. Learn <laughs> questions. It's just investment <laughs> advice. We're going to start uh, right here on the third row. And do we have uh, microphones? Yes. Yeah, so w- uh, wait till you have the microphone. Tell us who you are if you have a... Um, my name is Valerie. And my brief question is about your thoughts on how like you were talking about the protests in places like Boise and, you know, red states. 
but those are all cities. And mm -hmm. cities are increasingly concentrations of like-minded, left-leaning people, and they're getting sort of politically more and more isolated from the surrounding areas. Even, even in New York, I mean, a lot of upstate is, you know, pretty solidly Trump country. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how to sort of blend them together and, and, and what is the remedy for that um, disconnect between cities and, and the states that they're in? Virginia, heal the rural urban divide, please. I think rural America has been incoherent and in trouble for a long time. I mean, um, I'm from New Hampshire. I'm from a small town, granted an academic town. Um, Jamel lives in a not the capital city or shortly to live in not the capital city of the state of Virginia. And I don't know, you know, if Boise is too urban, um, if it, like to fit this model or um, the capitals of welfare states like Montana, the places that got the places that had marches. I don't know what to do with the with the small towns or the small municipalities. Um, I don't know what ha is happening to agribusiness. It wasn't a focus of the campaign. The towns that, you know, Trump uses all these proxies, but when he was trying to talk about flyover states or red states, what he knew about them, he would sometimes gesture at Detroit, which was a proxy for black, and then it suddenly became about drugs and and ruination and carnage. And then the other thing he would say, he didn't ever talk about farmers, to my knowledge. I think he only ever would then talk about, you know, the Rust Belt or this fantasy of what the mines looked like. Sort of a dodge, but I, I think Jamel's incredible piece for Slate where he points out that it's retail workers in small cities and exurbs and suburbs, not in rural areas, but that really are suffering from unemployment and that they're people of color and, and women. But as for people in rural areas, they, it, I mean, they're just such a small population in truly rural areas. Someone can tell me otherwise. I don't think either side addressed them in the campaigns, and I'm sure they feel underrepresented at every level, including in the state legislature. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's tough. I mean, one thing to think about is sort of when, I think when people who live in big cities like New York, D.C., uh, Chicago, L.A., uh, et cetera, talk about the rural-urban divide, I think they often imagine that the people on the rural side are thinking about them. But it's more likely that they're thinking about the nearest, largest town right. in the vicinity, right? So, like, down in south uh, southwestern Virginia, if you are in a rural, if you're in Bath County, Virginia, like the city for you might just be like Bristol, mm -hmm. uh, Virginia, or it might be Martinsville, Virginia, but sure places with like, you know, 80, 90, 100,000 people, um, but they're not like the cities as we conceive of them necessarily. I think maybe the, 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 the key to maybe bridging the urban, the urban rural divide, or at least like making, um, <laughs> making liberal blue lefty politics, like more viable, uh, across, uh, like expansive land is to plow resources in these small, uh, these small cities, largest towns that are the focal points for a lot of otherwise rural counties, but are kind of like lost in the mix. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's like one thought. The second is that there are plenty of places in the country where rural America is is actually pretty hospitable to lefty politics. And th those places are places where the rural population is disproportionately black and Latino. Um, like one in one in five rural counties are majority black and Latino. And mm. they're basically kind of like like forgotten counties in American politics. Right. Because like when we think about when 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 we say rural, typically what we're thinking about are like, you know, blue collar white white workers in the middle of nowhere, um, and so that's sort of like the frame for rural politics. And then we think about uh, non-white politics in, in terms of urban areas. But there's actually like, there are a lot of there are a lot of brown people, and you know, my family, uh, my extended family, all lives in like the middle of nowhere in South Georgia and the Florida Panhandle, and they live in places that are like mostly black, and they're very rural, and they're basically ignored by. Um, political establishments in their states and certainly nationally and kind of like making investments in places like those isn't going to like fix your problem but you'll begin to get headway if you at least have some kind of political presence in those areas of the country 
Um, we got to wrap this up. Who wants the last question of the Tribeca Film Festival? Um, I see a hand. Uh, I'm, I'm pointing at you, sir. Can you see me right there? Yes, you. Hi, my name is Jonathan. Uh, assuming the world doesn't end in the next 610 days, um, what's your prognostication for what happens after the midterm elections and how does Trump world evolve in January 2019? Great last question. I mean, I'll start that one out by saying I think it depends on those 24 seats, right? I mean, I think if Democrats retake the House, not the, it's a very long shot, they would, they would uh, take back the Senate. But if they have the House, they have subpoena power, they have the power of investigation. I think if Democrats take the House, there are going to be impeachment proceedings. I think it's highly likely. Um, and whether Trump is removed from office or not, I think that's what the second half of his term would be about. And if they don't take the House, I think none of that will happen and it will be pretty much the way it is now. So that's my prognostication. I, you go, Jamal. Yeah, I don't, I don't I don't think mine's much different. I mean, it all kind of just hinges on if Dems take the House. Um, uh, and if they do, I mean, if they do, right, if they take the House and then they say don't take the Senate, which, like Jacob, I think it's pretty, I think a, a twofer is pretty unlikely. I would expect Republican senators to begin, like, panicking, right? That, like, all of a sudden they realize the ground under their feet is rapidly shifting. And that would induce some kind of behavior changes. I don't know what they would be. Um, but, yeah. But... Democrats will probably be very aggressive with subpoena power if they get the House, and I don't know what Team Trump will do. Um, this assumes like Team Trump will be kind of like intact at that point. Uh, I don't know. You know, we may see some people leave, um, some people go to jail. I don't know. Well, we're all cheering for President Pence at this point. Are we though? <laughs> Are we? <laughs> Just that it would suggest impeachment. Spare us that idea that it's a possibility. That's it for tonight's show, which has come to you. Thank you. Thank you. We've been live from the Tribeca Film Festival, and I want to thank Jason DeLeon, Jason Gambrell, Steve Lichtai, Andy Bowers, June Thomas, Kirsten Holtz, Tatiana Flowers, Andrew Essex, and Jane Rosenthal. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. For Jamel Bowie and Virginia Virginia Hefferton, I'm Jacob Weisberg.